This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Undermining the U.S. Constitution, How the Communist Manifesto Blueprints the Action of the Democratic Party and even President Obama today. Complicated title and a certainly interesting subject matter that we'll be delving into. And my author joins me from near Atlanta, Georgia, Diane S. Fan. Thank you, Diane, for joining me today. Very welcome. Well, this this is, again, a, a very complex area of discussion. You deal with Marxism, communism, socialism, all of those, uh, those three general areas. Are those three areas uh, the same? When you, when you say Marxism and socialism, are those identical or are they different? Uh, Karl Marx lived in the 1800s, and uh, he uh, was a socialist, and he was asked to leave a couple of countries because of his socialist writings, and he connected with some in England who hired him to uh, write the Communist Manifesto for them. So I now actually am using the terminology of extremist socialist uh, as far as meaning the same as a communist or a Nazi, actually. But uh, the two... Uh, are the extremist end of socialism. Among the photos in your book are your reminiscence of Berlin during the Cold War. Uh, how did those photos get taken? That was part of the motivation to, to write this book, I think, in the early stages. What is there about Germany and your visits there that motivated you? Well, back in 1970, uh, I joined the military of the United States Army Reserve Nurse Corps. I was first uh, in the Army Student Nurse Program at University of Nebraska. They paid for my last years of college. It was the Vietnam War. And when I joined, I thought I would be going to Vietnam. It turned out when I got out of uh, college and uh, had my RN, registered nurse, they uh, sent me to basic training in August of 19. 74 and told us we were the first group no one was going to go to Vietnam and gave us uh, options of where we could go to to uh, uh, be stationed. I went to Fort Ord in California for about a year and then I went to Germany and was stationed at Second General Hospital in Lonsdorf, Germany. And when we, I went through orientation in Germany, they asked us to please make a trip over to East Germany because the East Germans were being told by the communists uh, that we were leaving and to make sure we wore uniforms so we wouldn't be shot as a spy, but please go over there. So before I left uh, Germany in 1977, that's when I got out, after doing my three years of obligated duty, I did travel by a plane in the first place into Berlin, which was beyond the Iron Curtain and inside of uh, East Germany. And I landed and uh, visited West Berlin, which was controlled by the West and the United States. And and then I went through Checkpoint Charlie in the middle of Berlin and actually took a tour bus uh, through East Berlin, which was under communist control, and then uh, did a walking tour after that. And I used my camera, which was just a 
little 110 Kodak camera, nothing special, and took a few pictures, some of which I put in the book. But at that time, the Berlin Wall still was up. It hadn't come down yet. Uh, Reagan hadn't made the speech about tear down your wall. And so I was able to actually climb it and climb the overlook of it and look down and take pictures. And, of course, those really impressed me. I realized that this wall was there to prevent people from leaving the east side for the west side. They'd been coming over in large numbers before it was put up. And uh, that uh, it was to restrain people from leaving. And then taking a bus tour into uh, East Berlin, I could see the contrast with West Berlin, such a, such a difference, and uh, my walking tour. Of course, I was in uniform and as, as I was told to be. What was, but, this, uh, what, that, what was the most shocking thing that, that impressed you when, you when you arrived in Berlin? Well, the West Side was upbeat, and there was a lot going on, and a lot of traffic. People smiled and were happy and moving around freely, and they even had a communist demonstration that was uh, I got literature for when I was out and about, and I actually went to see. Uh, they were protesting a, a rise in the U-Ban uh, fee, I believe. And But when I went over to the East Side, it was like, complete opposite nobody out on the streets if they were they were frowning even though I gave a nice smile they wouldn't wouldn't return my smile and I actually uh had to listen to quite a bit of propaganda from the tour guide on the tour bus and Mm. I had never in my life thought you know she's been brainwashed and and that was what I was hearing but that came to mind that she's been brainwashed and never before since have I have I really had that feeling about anybody? But we sat down at a small cafe and uh, had something to eat, and she came up and sat beside me and the stranger I was with and went over the fact that she hated living there. Her father was a, I mean, her husband was a doctor, and uh, he could leave, but they couldn't. It was customary the family had to stay if anybody left uh, a communist area. There had to be families that they wanted to return to. And her children were unhappy living there. They uh, didn't like learning Russian. They preferred to learn English as their second language to German. And anyway, I was when she walked away, I thought, oh, wow, you know, she's not brainwashed, not yeah, at all. Right. And the gentleman, gentleman with me, he said, that's the stupidest woman you'll ever meet in your life. Mm. And I said, Why? And he said, because we could, either of us could have been a plant. Well, that's true. And yeah, he that... had been a spy in, in World War II in, in Berlin, and he actually had worked for the Allies. And so uh, he knew what he was talking about, I figured. Wow. But anyway. Well, it's incredible, that, that story itself. But you uh, are raising the flag of concern by the title, Undermining the U.S. Constitution. You have have some personal concerns that you've outlined in this book. It's uh, just over 100 pages, so you've done research and uh, also raised some questions about what's transpiring in politics and uh, the future. What is your concern, particularly? Well, I have uh, always uh, worked as a nurse, and nursing is my field. Now, I did become an educator it turns out that my father and my mother, their brothers and sisters, were 
educators. And so that's what runs in the family. I uh, was the first nurse, and I did start teaching nursing, pediatric nursing, and that's been my area of concern. And I had no real desire to follow politics, although I knew that I was a conservative, and, of course, I am a Christian. So uh, I felt like when I was listening to uh, Obama as he ran for office in the first place, I felt very concerned. I felt uh, that there was a... I was getting a feeling of what I saw in East Germany, and uh, I met a few communists outside of East Germany uh, during my tour of duty there. And, of course, I had been exposed to what Hitler did and and, uh, his uh, uh, way of orating and so on. And I just had a very bad feeling about President Obama. And I started wondering, why would a a a United States political party of importance, such as the Democrat Party, put forward somebody I felt so suspicious about? And so... I felt like I had to understand this. This uh, very much concerned me. So I did work on, um, oh, I have a a master's degree in nursing, and the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, the head of the program, she wasn't uh, very uh, liberal with praise, but she told me I had written the best review of the literature for my thesis that she had ever read. And so that really impressed me. So I felt pretty good about my ability to read something and and interpret it. Plus, I prayed a lot, and so I got a copy of the Communist uh, Communist Manifesto, which to me was the original document. Although Karl Marx and his friend uh, Friedrich or Frederick Engels came back and added some addendums to it later, but I went to the the very first pamphlet, which was a little over 50 pages, depending on what source you get it from, and read it. And as I read it, I saw the word American three times or something like that, and the Constitution was noted. And it seemed, and as I delved into it, that this document, the Communist Manifesto, was actually the antithesis of our U.S. Constitution. It took the exact opposite point of view of everything, you know, said discard religion and law and morals, that they didn't mean anything. And it was all just oppression from the middle class, which they, he called the bourgeoisie. So in the event, I felt like this was something I was learned to be afraid of in grade school. They told us the communists might bomb us and hide under our desk uh, if uh, a bomb w- went off and they'd, they'd sound the fire alarm and have us hide under our desk. So I, I grew up fearing communism, but I had no real understanding of it until I went into the manifesto and actually broke it down. So I decided that I would actually run for office and uh, for Congress, and, and and I realized that it wasn't likely I was going to uh, go very far because I was calling for the impeachment of Obama and questioning uh, the Democratic Party as a whole. Well, that made you so very popular. Everything. That would that would increase your popularity, wouldn't it? No, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no, no, no. Not in 2010. And so uh, in the event, I went ahead and ran and lost, as I, I as I expected. But the Democrat that had the area, uh, the incumbent, Blue Dog Democrat, he did lose to a Republican. So ultimately, hmm. I felt like I won. And then... Uh, I went ahead in 2011 and started working on the book, 
and because uh, I feel as an educator that education is our best defense, and I, I don't underestimate anybody's ability to learn. Everybody can learn if they put their mind to it. I believe absolutely. And uh, you, you've taken so you've taken a com- you've taken a comp- complex uh, complex subject, the uh, manifesto in particular, and have broken it down to a little easier to understand approach. What is it that I guess primarily concerns you about the undermining of the Constitution. What do you think is actually taking place that uh, we should be concerned about? Well, I am a documenter. As a nurse, you document your patient's uh, status at all times. And I work intensive care, emergency room, again with pediatrics. So that's the approach that I took for after I uh, went into the Communist Manifesto and related some historical facts and realized I really could have included some Republican things that had happened. The Republican Party had also uh, been uh, colluding to a degree uh, in implementing the manifesto. Mm -hmm. I went ahead and just focused on President Obama and what was going on with the Democratic Party before he came into office. Uh, In other words, the running up of our deficit, that's very much in line with what uh, Karl Marx would have wanted. He, he felt that uh, your uh, capital was essential. So the fastest way to bring down a capitalist nation is to ruin the capital. And uh, so I, I went through the different things that were happening and just following what I was seeing uh, through the uh, media. And it tried to verify from one or two different sources before I put anything in my book that what I was getting was correct. And the book went into publication the first time. I, it was self-published. I didn't really know anything about self-publishing. And so I have updated a few times since. But in 2012, January was the first time it came out. Hmm. And uh, at, since then, no one has really contradicted me. Now, nobody really has wanted to buy the book because some uh, comments were made online and Amazon pretty quick Obviously, they hadn't read the book, but they they were negative. I do believe Amazon cleared some of those away when they realized they hadn't purchased the book. But in the the event, it didn't sell. It hasn't had a record of selling. But what I have done with it is give it away. And, in fact, most everybody in Georgia that's uh, in politics has got a copy, whether or not they looked at it. Uh And in May of 2015, I actually mailed... um, 500 and some copies, I think 535 total, 102 the Senate post offices in the uh, in Washington, D.C., and the House of Representatives, everybody that is a member of the House. And uh, so they all got a copy in their mailbox, and uh, it was from me. Now, whether uh, I do know that uh, a congressman did touch base with our uh, GOP chair here in Georgia and said, told him that he'd gotten a copy of my book in his box. And I know the next week, President uh, Obama uh, was laughing and saying they're calling me a communist out there. So I thought, well, probably somebody shared what they've gotten in their box with him. But anyway. <laughs> but uh, you're, that, you're, you're, that, yeah, your book is more than just uh, an accusation uh, pamphlet or uh, a thesis. It actually gives some details of the history of Marxism, communism, and, and socialism, and uh, equates what's happening in our society with those fundamental things that were outlined 
over a hundred and what, hundred and fifty years ago, a hundred and yeah, almost a hundred and fifty years yeah. ago, eighteen forty-eight. Yeah. So this yeah. is uh, this is a book that may be of value to anyone that's interested in history and anyone that's interested in the U.S. Constitution and how it may be being affected by philosophies and the outlook of current people in power. Where do my listeners get a copy of Undermining the U.S. Constitution? Well, I have uh, Author House published it for me every single time since 2012 when I uh, found examples I wanted to add. Uh, they updated it for me, so it's available online through Author House uh, as well as uh, Barnes and Noble, and also uh, Amazon. Uh, Lit Fire Publishing contacted me last year. They were interested in publicizing my book for the sake of uh, the election period. So I have uh, actually had a, a book put out this last edition with Lit Fire Publishing. So you can go there. It's a, it's the same, fewer pictures, but it is the same book. But they they uh, had the idea that the title, like being advertised in the Washington Times and so on, was enough to give people pause about who they were going to vote for. Well, good. So anyway, I, I did a work with them last year. Well, thank you for sharing your story. This, again, is a uh, short read, 109 pages, but it's well-documented. It's not just an opinion piece. Uh, it has uh, simplified the understanding, or at least your understanding, of Marxism and how it's impacting our world. So thank you for sharing that with us today. Again, the author's name is Diane S. Van. Diane is with an E, D-I-A-N-E, middle initial S, last name V-A-N-N, and uh, using the short title, Undermining the U.S. Constitution, would be an easy way for them to do a search online and locate you. Do you have a website also, Diane? Yes, dianevan.com. Dianevan.com. I, I believe there's only one of them uh, at this point in time, dianevan.com. Excellent. When I ran in 2010, there was 17 Diane Van. Really? Not <laughs> something. So, uh, but I think there's only one. Well, so, thank ex- you very much. Well, my pleasure. Great visiting with you, and best of luck. And uh, listeners, uh, this would be a good study book for you to get a better understanding of these names and these uh, references that are being tossed about in the media: Marxism, communism, socialism, you know, Nazism. You name it, and uh, those are being thrown about. And most people don't really have an understanding. This book will give you that understanding of uh, what really is the underlying message and what it really means, and not just a term that's being misused in in conversation. Again, the title, Undermining the U.S. Constitution, and uh, the author, Diane S. Van. Thank you, Diane, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. My pleasure for Author House and Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff. And find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. 
To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Welcome to Author Voices on Air, and I'm your host, Rick Bell. Our next book is An Avid's Guide to 60 Songwriters, which is an essential reference book for 60s music lovers. This encyclopedic overview includes detailed chart statistics and biographical information for 80 songwriters and covers around 2,000. And joining me today to tell us more is the writer and author Peter Dunsbaven. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you for joining me. Now, it's a book that I think music lovers of all ages um, will like. The 60s as a music decade is still, as I say, is loved by people young and old. But for you, what was the, the main thing that inspired you to write this book? Well, I think obviously the, the passion um, for music in general, but uh, I mean, the 60s, and I grew up, my adolescence was in the 60s, so it was very special. So the passion for that particular era uh, is, is as strong now as it, as, it, as it was then. And as you've just said, it is for a lot of people. So, I mean, firstly, the passion for 60s music, but more, more for me with the songwriters of that era. Um, I mean, even, when, even before that, when I was very small, um, I used to be combing through the record collection at home and I was always fascinated by certain names that kept cropping up um, in, in the family record collection. People, everybody was not, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Irving Berlin, uh, Cole Porter, the Gershwins. And so even if, if you like, before my era, before my time, I had this fascination. I thought, who are these people? Who are these creators of these marvellous songs? And, I mean, the, the people who were singing them looked old to me, and so I was more interested in the, in the creators. So that fascination with songwriters started way back, and then as the 60s unfolded and I became adolescent and more in tune with the music, it, it, it moved up a notch. It really moved up then, and I was able to find out a lot more about you know, the great writers of that era, such as uh, Burt Bacharach, Hal David, uh, Jerry Goffin, and Carol King. So those were the names which cropped up in the early 60s. And, um, I mean, they've written some of the greatest songs ever. And uh, so I, I was I was always, always in the background uh, looking at who the songwriters were. And that, uh, that, that carried through right through the Beatles era and into the 70s. So I, I thought, right, at some point, as everybody does, I thought, hmm, you know, there's a book in all of us. If I'm going to write one, it needs to be about that, about the area I'm passionate in. And also it would be kind of a, a lasting legacy from a family and people to really, you know, let me know who, who let people know who I really was, if you like, what really uh, I was passionate about. So that was what started um, the whole process about, must be four or five years ago, actually, now. And here I am. Start talking to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I mentioned during the introduction that there's no question that the 60s has um, fans, music lovers of all ages. But when you were you decided to write the book, who would you say 
that you wrote the book for and why? Yeah, firstly, it was my my generation, you know, the people that I grew up with who I've got all the memories, all those precious memories. So it was the that, that era, that generation. But also, as you, as you said, a lot of musicians and a lot of even younger people are still fascinated by that era, not just the, the music and the songs, but the culture, uh, the, the, the changes, the huge changes in that era. So I then thought even, even my children and their generation uh, would be interested. And then when I got involved with the publishers, I mean, and the type of book I was writing, uh, because it, it's partly, a, well, largely, I suppose, a reference book, um, they sort of said, well, this, this would be suitable for academics, uh, for people who are uh, at universities and in libraries, that kind of thing. So it moved on from my kind of local thing about uh, my generation into a much wider sphere. And, and, and I think it's been marketed, actually, by the publishers towards universities and libraries. But that's not how, it, that's not how I started it. And I hopefully it will be much more than that. Um, because there's, there's many biographies of this, and they're very easily readable because I'm easily read. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a literary genius, so the, it would be very easy to read. So I hope that people will actually read it as well as it being a reference book. What would you say is the one thing that people enjoy the most about 60s music? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think... For me, it's the, the, the diversity uh, of, of, the, of the music and, as I said before, about the actual culture, the history of that particular generation. But the music was a key part of it. And I think the, the thing that distinguishes um, the 60s songs and what makes this book a bit different is the, the difference in styles. It, 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 the music spoke in many different voices at the same time. Uh, and it was an exceptional eight or nine years, particularly the mid to late 60s, where a lot of people would argue that the, the, the popular music form was at its peak. Uh, I, I don't think it's just our, my generation that believes that. I think it's, it's a general thing. I mean, everybody's got their own um, time when you're in your teens and think that music's special. But I, I think if, if in the mid-60s it was. It was quite unique. Uh, there were so many different forms taking place simultaneously and I think everybody thought anything's possible at that time. And, 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 and music and having records is kind of the currency of young people at that time. Um, I mean, if you just think of the different styles, you've got all the rock-type music, you've got folk rock, psychedelia, uh, you've got Tamlin Motown, you've got Stax. But in the middle of that, you've got all the mums and dads music as well. I mean, the biggest selling music at that time, around that time, were things like The Sound of Music, Dr. Chivago, Engelbert and Tom Jones. And it was in the middle of all these other great changes that were taking place. So if people reading this book, hopefully, uh, when, when they read it, it'll, it'll bring back, obviously, uh, a lot of memories, but also it could be a reminder to everybody how powerful and groundbreaking and diverse uh, the music of the 60s era was and you know it bound a whole generation of young people I don't think there's any other period in popular music when you when you could see such a radical change in such a short time and and I think if if you see the the songs in it there's about 2,000 songs which I cover um, and you look at the variation and the diversity, I think that will bring it home to everybody who reads it about what a special time it was, and hopefully that'll be what people can take away, as well as all the 
uh, historical information that there is for the academics. I hope so. Really, that is, that's really what I truly hope people will get out of it. Now, I'm going to ask a question that you might find um, a little difficult to answer, but if I was to ask you what particular style of 60s music or what particular individual artist influenced you more than any other, what would your answer be? I would say the music of uh, Lennon McCartney and Bob Dylan, uh, those two. And I think, um, the, I know it's some perhaps a cliche with the Beatles, Bob Dylan and so on, but I honestly believe it was the, the fusion of the kind of music that Lennon McCartney and the Beatles produced, along with the poetry uh, that Bob Dylan, uh, the, the poetic part of his music, it was the fusion of that which made it for me. I mean, when, when those types of music were brought together... I think that was what made music an art form. It took it away from, well, it's just a little sideline, it's just young kids enjoying themselves. It became an art form. So I think that Lennon McCartney and Bob Dylan, were the, they were crucial in the development of music. All right, there were, there were other great, great songwriters, but if you had to pin me down, I would go for that. I mean, the, the palette that the, 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 the employed was enormous. And as I say, when they heard Dylan, I mean, they had to change. The, the lyrical content changed, so it became more poetic. And that was it. I mean, music became an art form. And from probably the late 60s onwards, it's been accepted as an art form. And I think a lot of the serious musicians would be, um, uh, would be quite critical if it was described otherwise. So I think that was it. For me personally, uh, the fusion of Lennon McCartney and Bob Dylan that's when music became. It was like a 180-degree change, and they were really at the vanguard of all those changes that took place. Now, getting back to the book and the writing of the book, um, tell me some of the challenges that you faced as a new writer. Obviously, it's a subject that you're very knowledgeable about and very passionate about, but it must have been very different putting that down in you know in written form and also on the other side of the coin what you found most rewarding i sat down one night and i said right i'll, I'll write a book like we all do there's a book in everybody and i never realized just what i was taking on i mean it's a, it's a big book anyway it's 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 the first serious book i've written and you're absolutely right to actually sit down and face either a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer screen and start that was a daunting task and there's many times and i mean many times that i walked away and thought i can't do this it was it, and i'm not a person who's a solitary type of guy and to sit down and, and actually try and do this it was the self-discipline that was required was enormous and i've got to say that i admire anybody who can churn books out week after week month after month year after year because to pin me down and start doing that was, oh, it, it was it was unbelievably hard. And then once I got into it, I really started enjoying it, even on a day-by-day basis. Once I started uncovering and researching all the facts, I began to learn a lot more about a subject I'm passionate about. So the enjoyment started. And uh, I couldn't believe the, the, the amount of things I was unearthing, which I didn't know. Uh, it, it was like all branches off a tree, if you like, going in different directions. And I suppose that's what propelled me. And once you get to a certain point with something, you're not going to give it up. You know, you've got so far and you think, right, I've got to carry this on. 
But there are so many times when I sat there, and, and I mean, m- many writers must have felt it. You've got writer's block, and you sit there, I think, nothing's happening. And you know, you go off, you make a cup of tea, you sit down again, and still nothing, <laughs> there's nothing happening. Uh, and that was, you know, a real obstacle for me. But there was so much enjoyment when I got into it. If somebody's reading it, I hope that, that comes out. The enjoyment I got in doing it, you know, the passion, I hope it's there in the actual writing. But I never realised how hard it would be. And, you know, it's easy to say I'll write a book, but it isn't. It is not easy at all. But don't let that put it. Anybody who's listening to this, don't let me put you off. If you've got a, a passion for something and you've got that knowledge, go for it. Because the rewards are tremendous at the end of it. Um, and... Um, you know, for me, it's just beginning, and the nice bits are now starting. Now, you've mentioned the challenges you faced, you've mentioned the rewards, but in closing, has it put you off writing another book or more books, or has it inspired you to carry on your writing? Right, somebody asked me that the other day and said, they looked at the book and, and, they, and they said, well, you must do another one. And when I finished it, there was a, there was a feeling of relief and a feeling of also, well, I, I'll never do that again. But having now got into, say, the nice bits doing this, and hopefully, you know, there'll be some, some rewards and so on. Um, somebody asked me that question the other day, and I thought, well, why not do another one uh, about the 50s or the 70s songwriters? Now, I think the 70s is probably not going to apply because my book's about the bespoke songwriters. I'm not writing a book about singer-songwriters about Lennon McCartney or Dylan, that kind of thing. It's the ones you probably haven't heard about. The 70s, there wouldn't be that many, but in the 50s, there were quite a lot, where you still had the the musicians were separate from the songwriters. So if I was going to do one, I would certainly consider it. It would be about the 50s. Uh, and I've got a little bit of knowledge to start with, but nothing like the amount from the 60s. But I think I would, I would do that, but I'd certainly... I'd want to enjoy myself with this book first before, you know, I sit down again and uh, and do the fitting. And I don't think it will be anything like as big as this book. It will be uh, a smaller book, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've been had a, a, if I had to pause from doing it, I think that would be the next project, Rick. Yeah. Well, we do hope that you are getting a lot of enjoyment out of this book as much as us, the listeners, are, and obviously the readers of your book and. We look forward to whatever you decide to publish in the future. An Avid's Guide to 60 Songwriters is published by Author House and is available direct from the publisher at authorhouse.com forward slash bookstore and all good bookstockers. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest today, the author, Peter Dunbavin, for joining me and for sharing his passion for his music with us. This is Rick Bell for Togonet Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room. 
a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Salmon Sam's Great Salmon Run. And joining me from Florida, where he resides and is also involved in a little bit of um, ship-to-shore stuff, is Captain Howard C. Williams. Captain Howard, how are you today, sir? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Tell me a little of your captaining. You you mentioned to me that fishing is, uh, is a, 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 I guess, an avocation or a, a vocation that you also are pursuing as captain. Uh, yes, I um, I own and operate a sport fishing charter out of uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, out of Fort Everglades Inlet. Your book title, Salmon Sam, now I don't think there's much salmon in Florida. Uh, how did you become uh, focused on salmon and the storyline that you have created? Well, I'm originally from New York City, and I've done a lot of uh, salmon fishing upstate New York, so that. That that's where the salmon comes from. I, I was a freshwater fisherman before I was an offshore fisherman. Okay. Alaska River is where I used to fish uh, for salmon. What created the desire to to write or tell this story about salmon, Sam? Well, I uh, salmon. The life cycle of a salmon has always interested me, and as a fisherman, I, uh, I it pretty much stuck stuck with me. You know, stuck in my head, so to speak, and. Well, I started writing books to entertain my youngest daughter, my youngest daughter, Leah. Oh, she's 32 now. <laughs> but so after I entertained her a little and my mother, I used to love to read to my mother my, 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 my writings and my books. She used to love it, my mother. <laughs> anyway, um, but I initially started writing for my youngest daughter. And then grandchildren started coming along. Um, and I continue to write. I've, I've written I've written numerous poems and uh, short stories and stuff all my life as a hobby. Kind <laughs> of funny. Me being the kid who stopped doing homework in the third grade. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> well the salmon is just just the life cycle of the salmon pretty is pretty much a, a it's a riveting story and, and it it's sort of a, a sad story, you know, but but I, I feel that children need to be introduced to life and it's cycles, you know, including death, death of plants, mm-hmm. uh, death of animals, not really to, to dwell too much on humans, but the cycle of life itself, you know, things that that live must come to an end and die. So I thought it would be a great story for, for a child to, uh, to be introduced into the cycle of life using the salmon. You know? Did you have your character, your main character, interact with other characters in the book, or is this more of a, uh, I guess, an observational book where you're on the shoreline watching the life of uh, Sam and Sam? No, uh, Sam actually, he goes through the whole cycle of being born upstream where salmon are born, you know, upstream, because the, the parents swim upstream. And, you know, as he grows, he goes downstream toward the ocean, but he has to encounter the dam first. 
and he meets friends along the way. They play hide-and-seek and tag and fishies peekaboo. Ah. And, you know, he, he gets into the ocean, and he meets friends like Oscar the Octopus. He played baseball with eight arms. Tommy Turtle. Uh, Tommy Turtle, he weighed uh, 300 pounds. And different characters, you know? Right. And, and, and then he meets Sally Salmon. He's way back from the ocean once the spawning instinct kicked in. He went. He left the ocean and went back to the shore, where he met all of his old friends and cousins, and another million more. You know, right? And then he met a fish named Sally, who he knew from his early life. Sal and Sally, Sam and Sally Salmon. Yes, she became his wife. You know. And, and together they went upstream, you know. There is some whimsy and uh, some true-to-life observations related to romance and uh, friendships and all of that also included in your, in your story. Yes, it's, 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 a, it's a, I wouldn't say a lengthy read. It's, it's, it's about a 15, 20-minute read with illustrations, and, and it, it pretty much explains all the way, you know. You know, what, it, fun, <laughs> the right. fun that he had encountering the different uh, obstacles and, and tribulations that he went through trying to get upstream, going downstream as a, as a, as a, fry, as a fry fish and hitting the ocean and encountering the, the, um, the fishing boats and the fishing hooks. Other obstacles in life. Uh, I, I'm guessing that in that you are subtly trying to get a message to the reader. Yes, yes. You know, yes, to let the reader know that there are obstacles in life that you can overcome. How long did it take you, Captain, to to complete the novel and get it ready for press? Oh, I would say in totality, maybe, uh, you know, honestly, I wrote it in about maybe four sittings. And then it was years later when I decided to publish it. Uh, the publishing process took maybe maybe six months. Six months. So illustrator, finding an illustrator, having him uh, draw up uh, everything, and then coordinating with uh, the author. I was mentioning, or going to mention the, the illustrations in your book. It's a very brightly colored book along with your dialogue. How would you describe the dialogue and the illustrations? Uh, was that a complicated process? Well, the dialogue, uh, I, I've always enjoyed, even as a child, in, in, in parochial school, story time, you know? Absolutely. And when the teacher would, would tell us stories that were rhythmic, those were the ones that I enjoyed the most, me personally. So I decided to write in three-verse rhyme. And that's, that, that's how I, I, I love to, you know, play with the words and um, tell a story with words, but make it rhyme uh, so children can, can pretty much sing it, you know? Sure. Um, the illustrations, yeah. Alex Florence. Yes. Alexander Florence. Alexander, the, Alexander uh, Florence, right. Yeah, Alexander Florence was, was the uh, illustrator. He's really good. <laughs> As he, a matter of fact, he's done the, um, the illustrations for two other books of mine. Uh, just the main characters. We haven't really gone through the, uh, the book itself to form a different, different uh, environment, so the different pictures. But Alex was great. Um, I let him read the book, and I read it to him, and he let him read it himself again. And, and then uh, together we decided what each page was going to look like, and 
he just went off and brought it back to me, and he came up with a. I love it. I, yeah. I love the illustration. Beautifully done. Um, Have you received any feedback from? I, mean, I know grandkids and family members probably are going to embrace this, but have you been able to share it with uh, other children? And uh, what's the response been? Well, actually, I haven't. I wrote this particular book years ago, and I really didn't. Uh, there was a time I was going to. Well, I was going to go to different libraries and have different book signings and so the children can come in and, and, mm-hmm. and hear my different books. Yes. But I never really I never really read any of them to anyone but my, my children and grandchildren and family members and friends. I'm going on their feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it was positive. That, again, the illustrations are, are gorgeous in it, and it uh, is an interesting storyline. Not many books deal with the wide range of emotions that you have dealt with in this book, but you've done a great job of doing so. And again, you've done that rhythmic thing in your writing, so it, it also holds your attention. The title, again, is Salmon Sam's Great Salmon Run, and uh, my author, Captain Howard C. Williams has joined me from Florida. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Where do my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, just about all the all the uh, the law publishing companies, you name it: <laughs> Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Author House. Uh, yeah, you can you can find it online very easily if you look for Sam and Sam, or uh, if you Google Captain Howard, uh, it'll come up. Fabulous. But, well. uh, it's available. You have other books uh, in the pipeline that will be released soon, it sounds like, and you're enjoying the creative process. So this is a good way to get your toes wet with this one, and my listeners mm-hmm. can certainly do a search under Salmon Sam's Great Salmon Run or Captain Howard. Thank you, sir, for joining me and sharing your story. Well, also, I, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you. It's also available in ebook form. Uh, so I don't uh, don't want to leave that out. Excellent. And I'm sure you'll have, if you haven't already, established a website. Is there a website in the works? Uh, it's in the works. <laughs> it's in the works. It's still in the works. I've got so much I'm, I've got so much I'm juggling right now between the fishing <laughs> and, and trying to get this writing thing together and my boat and my cars. It's I, I have a lot of hobbies. <laughs> I, I understand. Well, congratulations on completing this one, and I'm sure if they do a search in the future or keep in touch through Captain Howard or through Sam and Sam's, they will be able to locate you and follow up on whatever else comes out of the publication pipeline. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate it. Everyone has a chance to check out Sam and Sam online, and I hope they enjoy it. Well, thank you again. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.